to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, we watched Cliffhanger. A botched mid-air heist results in suitcases full of cash being searched for by various groups throughout the Rocky Mountains. So, Die Hard on a Mountain? Sort of? Okay, well, that's what everyone has described this movie as? I think that's how we're going to have to judge it. Totally fair, but to judge this movie, we need guests. Did you say guests, plural? Yes, we have two guests, David. Who are they? Two of our favorite people. One of them has been on this show before. One of them has not. Two founding members of the Roll to Play Network. It is Kent Blue and Tim Devine. Hello, I'm back again. Hello. 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 Thank you all so much for coming to talk uh, Mountain Die Hard. I'm glad to be here on, uh, I'm going to hold the stance of not die hard on a mountain. Ooh, okay. What about you, Tim? Die hard on a mountain or no? Uh, I think that there was like a, definitely, there's some things that connect, but there's a shortage of like fist with your toes, you know? I mean, there's no jacket in the snow. What? No jacket? They took away his jacket and they're in the snow. I feel like it's comparable to the no shoes. Okay. I mean, yeah. The no shoes and die hard. Yeah, the, that's mean, my that's my comparison. But I feel like the no shoes and die hard was a story, like a important story thing, whereas the no shirt and the code was a, a let's get Sly's muscles on film before we wrap him up in you know thick clothing for the rest of the movie. But it it also exposes him to the elements, which makes him that much more susceptible to death. I mean, fair. I mean, two things can be true. <laughs> I don't know. So general thoughts for us. This movie slaps. This movie moves. This was a really good movie. Very quickly. Quite possibly it's good because it was expected to be terrible. Well, there's that. And then after six months of Oscar films and Bond films, getting a movie that's just shy of two hours that doesn't feel like two hours long, like, this movie is moving fast. They just keep going. They never stop. Yeah, I genuinely, genuinely enjoyed this movie. Like, I know I had seen it as a kid or when I was younger, but I genuinely enjoyed my watch of it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I remember loving this movie when I was a kid, when I saw it. It was right there for me with, like, The Fugitive, you know, those, those types of movies come out around the same time where it's just, like, everything is going in one direction. It is just a chase or a mm-hmm. hunt, and it was it was... I, I like I like how you said it. It moved swiftly. They they show they show like here's here's our person, here's our problem, here's our obstacles that are gonna get in way of solving said problem. Here's our next obstacle, here's our emotional bullshit, because you gotta have that in an action film. You gotta have some emotional stakes. Solution, end of movie. And like the best of nineties action movies, this does not feel like an eighties rehash. Because there's a lot of movies made around the same time that feel like they were made in the mid 80s. They look and they feel and they move like they were made in the mid 80s. Okay, their clothing looks like it's from the 80s. Uh, <laughs> sort of. Some of them do, but a lot of it is just because they're in the middle of Colorado or they're federal agents. Like, I bought that it was still 1993 because these people probably wouldn't have updated their wardrobe. Yeah, it was like 85 in Colorado at that time. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, at no point did this movie feel like it was rehashing bad 80s tropes. Right, yeah. It was just using solid elements that are, people had already built on. And, you know, we've watched Point Break for this. That movie does not feel like it's in the 80s. 
Mission Impossible in 95 does mm. not feel like it's in the 80s. There, there are movies around this time that still feel like they're trying to hold on to that first wave of the movies. This one does not feel like it's part of that. Yeah, I get that. I mean, because like in the 80s, your action heroes were like big and like you expect them to come in and say that. And this is Sylvester Stallone. So you kind of but like he played like a more grounded like character. Like it wasn't like I'm going to roll in here with like two big rivals and blow everything up. Like you wouldn't expect that out of this character, out of uh, Gabe. Glad you could join us. Yeah, sure. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Gabe. So how's the knee? I think it's out. No big deal. Oh, yeah, I remember when you twisted it getting out of that hot tub. I thought it was an old war wound from Nam. Really? Yeah, it was like it was like if uh, if Rambo would have been just left the hell alone to live his life in that little town, like he would have turned into this Sylvester Stallone. And like a genuinely good natured guy, too. Like Stallone often plays either with Rocky. It's rough had a rough go you know, through life and has mm-hmm. made something of himself or Rambo who is just completely and horribly damaged by war. And in this, it's just dude who has a pretty awesome life helping out with rescues and then has a tragedy happen and is trying to work through that. That's it. Yeah. His character's very simple. Yeah. Um, it's very straightforward. And he got wiry for this movie. He, he did. Like people talk about him bulking up, but it's like, there's something about it because we watched all the Rocky movies. He's so like enormous. And in this, he has slimmed down. Yeah. Yeah. He's just pure muscle and slim climbing frame. It was just, it's just from gravity though. I mean, he's just hanging. That's just, just, it reformed the muscle. Well, when, optical also when you see him up against the face of a cliff, then, you know, it just looks a lot different yeah. on camera. No. Yeah. I was going to say he looks like, like a climber he doesn't look like somebody who's like like a weightlifter or anything like that i mean he actually looks like somebody who used those climbing muscles muscles. yeah maybe that's the thing about it is that as wacky as the premise of this movie is at no point did i not buy into it they really tried to go some weird places with it and every time i was like no i buy that this could happen so the budget for this film was 70 million dollars which for 1993 is a lot of money. I mean, I feel like all of that went to that plane scene, the the high the high scene. For yeah. Sure. Who you there? There is a lot of cost involved in making a movie like this. Yeah, yeah. and special effects, which are pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. Special effects, but I will tell you now, there's also not a lot of special effects in this movie. I know, movie. but. But like you I mean you can tell when they switch to a green screen. Yeah. Especially when they're they're doing explosions. Those explosions are not real. Or or falling. Sure, totally. <laughs> Whenever someone's falling. Sure. sure. They they that's that's another thing to tie it back to the oh, diehard sure. Oh yes. There is the villain falling. Sure. Ooh, that is such a direct <laughs> so, diehard shot. So now I'm now I'm starting to <laughs> There's there's the connections ways. that I found along the way. But I also feel like they did enough different stuff in the story and made the character. McLean is such a cynical bastard and Gabe is not. Gabe is completely earnest. And I think that's the big difference. Like our heroes are completely earnest, if not having fun. But like they're they're like we're in the middle of a ridiculous situation. All we want to do is help people get off mountains and be safe. Like what the fuck are we doing in the middle of terrorists? Yeah. (laughs) bankrupt yeah john mcclain john mcclain griped about it the whole time that's what that's what that was like the it's like the the reluctant begrudging hero exactly. yeah. <laughs> but 
versus Stallone, who's just like the whole time, I'm going to save the day and ruin their money. <laughs> it was such a such a social justice warrior. And that's and then and then you have McLean, who's like, damn it, I'm going to steal someone's shoes. Why are these terrorists all have tiny feet? It was very Dante Hicks. I'm not even supposed Stay to be here today. Oh, the whole time. <laughs> that's exactly that's it. Exactly that's exactly his it. sentiment. <laughs> Good clerks tie in. I think this is actually uh, uh, clerks on a on a there mountain. There you go. <laughs> there it is. Kevin Smith, do clerks on a mountain? Woo! I mean, also Gabe had fanboys. I mean, those, those two guys at the beginning that pulled up yes! and they were yelling, and Gabe was just barely talking at a whisper, having this conversation. Right. But he had fanboys that that were there for him. John McClane didn't have any of that. No, he didn't. All right. $70 million is the budget. U.S. gross, it made $84 million. And then global, it made $255 million. All right. So this was a legit blockbuster, despite, I feel like, it never really getting any prominence past its time. See, past its time, sure. But I I was a little too young for this movie when it came out. Same. I remember, I'm pretty sure my parents went to go see it. But I remember the advertising for this film was relentless. Oh, yeah. It was a big deal in 1993. Yeah. But to me, what's interesting is that this one hasn't stood up in the canon. No. Like, this has not been one of those movies that action fans are like, you have to see. Well, this is one of Stallone's standout, you have to see, of his works. Which is crazy to me, because for me, it's such a unique, interesting version of what he does. Yeah. I mean, like for me, I'll think of the cliffhanger Super Nintendo game before I think of the movie. Like, like I think that's <laughs> wait, you know, there's a Super Nintendo game. Oh yeah, it was good oh. too, and it was good. Oh, and it just was wait good. till Last Action Hero. Okay, I know about Last Action Hero because I did all the trivia for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I knew this was also the the time where literally every single movie they made a video game yeah. out of because Fuck yeah. they figured out, hey, we can make money that way. But that it was good is what is surprising. I remember it. I remember it being good. I remember you sliding down the down the the cliffside, which I mean, you don't like, you know, grade a guy's face off like like Sylvester Stallone does in this movie. <laughs> well, it's, that's a miss off. Which is just, I mean, that's horrible. Like going down a mountain and you're just dragging your face in the ice and snow. <laughs> There's some bad, painful deaths in this movie. I mean, just one. People falling is horrible, but, you know, impaled. It is an unexpectedly violent movie. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was sitting here watching it, and 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm not sure why this is rated R. And then, like, some like people start using the <laughs> F word, every other word. and Yeah. You know why it's rated R? Michael Rooker. <laughs> what? Didn't even, didn't even know it was Michael Rooker for, like, 10 minutes. Actually, I we, saw him and I'm like, that's why this movie needs to be an R. I saw I saw his name and I was like, when's Michael Rooker showing, showing up? I was like, oh, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had hair. Everybody forgets. He used to have hair. But his face is the exact same. Oh, yeah. The development story of this movie is actually pretty interesting because this movie went through three different iterations. None of them related to rock climbing before it got made. It starts with Carol Co. Pictures, who is the main production group for this. And Carol Co., I think, I don't know this for certain, but is partnered up with Joel Silver. So Joel Silver was the driving force behind Mm -hmm. this whole thing. His name comes up a lot in action films. He's a big deal. He was the original guy. He, you know, Bruckheimer comes from Joel Silver. And then Michael Bay comes from Joel Silver after that. And so it's all kind of flows out. Joel Silver's the original Uh big R-rated action guy. Yep. Originally, this was supposed to be a comedy 
with John Candy, directed by John Hughes. It was going to be called Bartholomew versus Neff. Got dropped along the way. They had no clue how that was going to happen. I want to know what the story What was that movie There's about? There's no explanation. Just that oh, that existed okay. Okay. and was what the original idea. Okay, uh, like a Mountie, essentially. I, f- I was going to say, I feel like it took place on a mountain, and that may be the through line. A Mountie and somebody doing shit in the mountains they're not supposed to. No. What? Because the next, the next iteration after that project was dropped was a film called Isobar. That was going to be a sci-fi horror movie about a genetically created monster loose on a high-speed train. It was going to have a $90 million budget with Roland Emmerich directing. None of those words make any sense. <laughs> Roland Emmerich of Independence Day fame? And Roland Emmerich in $90 million makes sense. But... <laughs> but none of those words equal movie. Emmerich wound up butting heads too much with Carol Coe and Joel Silver over the script and the movie itself. And so then that project got shelved. So then they bring in Rennie Harlan, who we'll talk about. Rennie is our director. Stallone and Harlan start developing a story called Gale Force. Stallone was going to be an ex-Navy SEAL fighting modern pirates and thieves in a coastal town during a hurricane, which is a fucking great action premise. Okay. Let's be real. I want that movie to happen. I mean, there's that movie Hurricane Heist that eventually get birthed out Who of Who knows? It could have just been like script goes on the pile off in the distance. Somebody reads about it and goes, hey, I could make that. I don't know. Hmm. So they developed that project from 1989 to 1991. But then Carol Co. deemed it too expensive, even though they'd already poured $4 million into the development and script. Okay. Because... Their thought was, at the time, the special effects to make the hurricane effects and everything were going to be too expensive. Yeah. So they decided, nah, we got to shelve it. Okay. Harlan had already been paid $3 million for Gale Force. He could have walked away with that development money. But he and Stallone then got with writers, and they got a hang of cliffhanging, which is a, finally with Gale Force, you've got a similar premise. You've got thieves on a mountain now instead of in a hurricane. Okay. And you're still dealing with the elements. There's an element. Okay. Easier element to control. So there's a little bit of an evolution into what we now have with this movie. Here's the funny part. The estimated budget for Gale Force with those special effects was going to be $40 million. This movie almost doubled that. (laughs) Okay. For the budget that they did. (laughs) Okay, but like, if this script is better, then obviously, if they can see it on paper, it's worth the money. It's just funny that after all that bullshit that they decided they were going to make a movie that was nearly twice the cost of the movie they said it was going to be too expensive. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds correct. So this is literally a, uh, a wonderful view into Hollywood executives thinking. But we got a good movie out of it. And that does finally lead us into our writing. So there's quite a few credits for this. We start with the main credit, which is for screen story and screenplay, Michael France. Now, do you know where we've heard Michael France before? Point break. He wrote Goldeneye. What? Yes. Uh, He would go on to write Goldeneye and then put out a three-year run of three of the worst superheroes ever made. 2003's Hulk, 2004's The Punisher, and 2005's Fantastic Four. 
Is that Eric Bana? Yes. Okay, yeah, that is the worst one. He <laughs> went straight to movie jail after that three-year run right there. He gets the main credit, but of course, Sylvester Stallone did extensive work okay. on this screenplay. And as we've talked about going through the entire Rocky series, we very much approve of the writing of Sylvester Stallone. He's got an Oscar for it. He he won an Oscar for it. And, you know, looking at his stuff in another world, he could have stuck to a career in writing and made just fantastic movies writing. He could have gone full art mode and been a perennial prestige filmmaker. He just chose to do action movies. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make the money and he wanted to make action films. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with any of that. So I feel like most of the good that's coming out of the script is probably Stallone. I'm here for it. Because Michael France wrote one really good script in his entire career. He goldeneye kicked ass. It does. Damn. And then we get into some weirdness. Okay. Because John Long, who is not a writer, he is a climber. Okay. Was required to receive screen credit for this movie. Okay. He wrote a novella on which the film is based, and the studios wound up having to pay out $750,000 in what was essentially hush money to other writers claiming credit. Basically, France took a whole bunch of different, like, climbers' uh, stories and ideas and compiled them into this script. And never, never oh. attributed. And outside independent producers showed proof that he had not originated this idea of a heist on a mountain. Yep. Like the premise alone had already been done over and over again by people who either had unpublished work or copyrighted work that just wasn't that prominent. Yep. You know, one of the producers who came forward said he had worked with John Long in the 80s on this idea. So they got those. And these two producers who showed proof also got $400,000 and a co-producing credit. So that's already about a million dollars of your budget that you had to pay to make people go away. To keep people from suing you for more. Scandalous. Yeah. I mean, the rest of it went to Sylvester Stallone in that plane scene. Yeah. That's yeah, your budget. important. And then finally, we have a potential secret writer. So there is a writer that is listed in one of the shooting scripts. His name is Terry Hayes. He wrote The Road Warrior, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and then Dead Calm, Payback, Vertical Limit, which makes a shit ton of sense if he went on to write on that from doing this mountain oh, movie. Okay. And then From Hell. Oh, okay, cool. A lot of writers in the kitchen on this one. Yep. Which means that they were probably doing a bunch of changes on set. Rewrites. Stallone Dialogue. was probably doing a lot of rewrites on set. Saying all of that, what do we think of the writing of this movie? Uh, A+. Plus. A+. Plus. I feel like it's good. I feel like, I mean... I was particularly happy with the line "righteous air hockey" at one point, <laughs> and and there was just a sequence where people kept saying "drop it," which I just felt like just poor poor wording for a mountain movie. They kept saying "drop it" or you know something with the word "drop" in it. But I think that's the bad guys who are saying that, and they wouldn't have appropriate mountain lingo. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I so I had I had two problems with the movie after rewatching it that I didn't have when I was younger and loved it. And I won't go through both. Just the one that's the, the I remember John Lithgow's dialogue being awesome, like Hans. Like like I remember it when I was a kid because I I, I would have compared this to to Hans Gruber from Die Hard. I would have been you know very memorable lines. They were so phoned in 
by the writers. It was like so cliche. It was it was like James Cameron cliche. Like there's no it's all filler. It's all fill it's all filler waiting for someone to come and polish it who never came. Because <laughs> he's too good an actor to, to have said those lines. I think what it was was they substituted quantity over quality for him. Mm-hmm. And then once they got in there, they also subbed him in for exposition. If they needed somebody to explain something, Quaylen was going to explain it. Mm-hmm. And it and it stinks because his character is his character is amazing, but they they give him so many words to have to say throughout the damn movie. Mm-hmm. I, I rem- like if you compared him to like like in, in one of the later Diehards, since we're staying in the Diehard vein, Diehard Three with Jeremy Irons playing the Hans Gruber's cousin or brother or whatever. Every line he delivers is amazing. It's well written, and his voice is one of the best voices in the world. So, like, I, I unfortunately now that I've seen that, I'm going back and comparing. It's like Lithgow is in this particular movie, which I held to such high, like, you know, standards. <laughs> it's like, oh, I was rewatching. It, I'm just, I'm going, what was wrong with me? <laughs> oh, I didn't have all these other movies to compare it to. I just, I guess, I say A plus writing because I'm just so impressed with the story. Like, I buy it and I'm into it. And usually with action movies, that's where it's bad. Usually with action movies, the dialogue is quippy and great. And that's one of the things that you're like, oh, it's so funny. I don't care that the plot is implausible or stupid or the ladies are pathetic and are helpless. The ladies are not helpless in this movie. No. So that's awesome. I mean, the one lady's helpless, but that's not her fault. <laughs> that is no no one's fault. Nope. No. So for me, it was just more of like, the movie moves and I enjoyed it. And you can't have that if the writing sucks. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on the, the difference between story writing and the dialogue. Like story sure. writing, I'm, I'm with the movie the whole time. Dialogue definitely needs a pass. Yeah. By some punchy people. And it's, and it's all the villains. Oh, Travers. Travers is just, I mean, I, you know, all in all, I like the movie. But the character of Travers, the double agent. It's just, I don't know if, if, if that guy was improving the whole time or if that was lines as written, but it was just so over the top, just constantly. He's way too fucking intense. <laughs> what are your names? Tucker and Walker. Well, Tucker and Walker, we're missing three bags. What's in them? None of your fucking business. Yeah. And he's, yeah. And he's, he's so constantly angry, despite the fact that we are trying to survive on a frigid mountain. Like at some point he should be a little bit scared instead. There's no tone yeah. shift from him. No. And that guy is a really good actor. Yeah. Like he is a known good character actor. So like it is jarring. That takes us to our director, Rennie Harlan. Full name, Rennie Lowry Mauritz Hariola. He is maybe the world's most famous Finnish director. Congratulations on just pronouncing that. <laughs> I don't think I did it correctly. It sounded good. <laughs> Before this film, he did the movies Born American, Prison, A Nightmare on Elm Street for The Dream Master, Ooh. Die Hard to Die Harder, and The Adventures of Ford Fair Lane. After this movie, he directed Cutthroat Island, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea, Driven, Mind Hunters, Exorcist the Beginning, The Covenant, Cleaner, 12 Rounds, Devil's Pass, The Legend of Hercules, Skip Trace, and he has a new movie in post-production called The Misfits. What do we think of Rennie Harlan's directing? 
So I, I knew when I'm watching this, the credits, I, I saw Rennie Harlan. And I was like, I know that name. And I, I couldn't think of it, but I just recently watched all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And like, that was his big like introduction to America cinema was, was Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which I know I watched a big documentary on that. I know there's problems with him on that movie, but like, that was like his big launching off point. And they did a lot afterwards, you know, kind of a lot of like action movies. I mean, some pretty good ones. I mean, for what they are. But no, I thought it was fine. The directing was fine. I mean, he had some really big set pieces he had to accomplish. And like I said, with the CGI, it's not for, I mean, it's 93. 93, 95. 93. It's not bad for 93. I mean, it's not seamless by any means, but like, it's, I, I'm only noticing it because I'm looking for it for sure. And every time we got those big aerial views, I kept thinking of Point Break, the 2012 version, because that movie is nothing but an Oakley's commercial in different uh, landscapes, and it's gorgeous. And I was like, that's what this movie feels like. Yeah, the 2012, the 2015 Point Break uh, is a movie in which you should not listen to any of the dialogue, but you should watch because it is stunningly beautiful, and the stunt sequences are like, incredible to look at like a james cameron movie they just you know just use the original script and we would have been fucking fine man but this one's prettier they go to more cool places yeah i know but the original is so much better you know thinking about this if you think about the three diehard movies the most ambitious of those movies like the one with the biggest set pieces is diehard 2 we have the big giant thing in the airport and the airplane you know deep blue sea widely regarded as a pretty Big fucking set piece movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about Rennie Harlan is he is maybe the master of Go Big or Go Home. Like, of all the different action directors, he is going to push it to the absolute limit on what he thinks he can do on camera. And not necessarily in a dangerous way, but just in a, what is the biggest I can do here? Without it being completely unbelievable. Rennie seems like a guy who just wants to take risks. And sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't. And in this time, it pays off big time. I have a gripe about the movie that I, again, I didn't have when I was a kid. Big, big problem with it this time. I don't know who to blame for it, so I'm going to blame the director. Where is anything and anyone in relation to anything else in this movie? (laughs) If you watch where it cuts, it's a different season. It's a different climate. It's a different setting and terrain. There's different vegetation. Nothing is the same, and and whenever somebody falls a long distance, it takes it's it's hard to climb up a mountain in snow, and they're not as wind like nothing is in relation to anything else. They slid for a good long while at that one point and got up, and we're supposed to believe that they're just magically back with everyone. It's just like nothing makes sense, especially the helicopter scenes. As soon as you're following a helicopter in, it's no longer nighttime, it's no longer dark, it's no longer it's like. And that that to me is very like 80s movies, like 80s yes. action movies, where they're like, the audience doesn't care. No one's going to watch this twice. They don't care about like the layout of this mountain park no. range. No one's going to Wikipedia this. Like, no, it... <laughs> no one's going to use this premise later in a TTRPG. Shut up. <laughs> Nobody yeah, wants the map. Every, every time the camera cut, I was asking, where are they now? Like, this is... <laughs> This is like, you know what this is? This is like, uh, Lord, it's like Lord of the Rings. Like, like it's this long, epic journey to the, to the cases, not this little short climb to a, up a mountain. There were some scenes, some shots that were very Lord of the Rings, like up on the mountain. Yeah, right? oh, just yeah. like in a line. <laughs> it's like, 
yeah, I've been here before. To piggyback on that, there there were moments in this where I was like, okay, why why is there suddenly a village in the t- this mountain that has a water source? <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, and the the weird museum where they take shelter. Yeah, way up in the yeah, where like like on the way like up the mountain. Artifact age. An artifact sweater. <laughs> so so I had I had uh, a gripe with that when I was younger. But since then, I was living in Oregon, and we we went skiing. And on one of these uh, on Mount Hood, one of these slopes, you go off the tall. Uh, the lift takes you to the second drop, and you come down this little path. And there's a lodge up there, and it looks just like that. Okay. And it's like if somebody would have left that sort of abandoned, or like, it's, or, may, or maybe during the summer people can hike there, but in the winter you just let it you close up the doors and let it go. So I didn't have as big a problem with it, but it was like it was one of those moments again where I'm like, where are they now? <laughs> she she got to him that i don't where is the, uh, i just need a map i need a map <laughs> i want a map this is definitely the epitome of we don't give a shit about continuity we're going to try to impress you so much with the stunts that you don't care and honestly on first watch i didn't care it's true. I don't, which yeah. you know that sold the tick that got the butts in the seats that's all that mattered to them Rennie Harlan originally turned on the offer to make this movie because he did not want to make another Die Hard 2. That's fair. Yep. He is a bit of a madman. To demonstrate his faith in the safety equipment that they were going to be using while climbing, he strapped on a harness and flung himself off a cliff. Just jumped right the fuck off. Then looked up at the actors and was like, we're good. I mean, I'm not surprised by that, but what little I know of Rennie Harlan via the Nightmare on Elm Street (laughs) movie and that documentary. We talked about this with Rumble in the Bronx about like just directors on action films just being like, I'm not going to ask anything of my performers that I'm not willing to do. And we're seeing that more and more with uh, stunt coordinators becoming directors and that just like and them like raising the bar with the stunts that are being performed, especially when actors are like, OK, I'm going to do it myself. And it's just like, oh. Yeah, but this is one where you could die. <laughs> like, the, the consequences are, are not like a broken bone or some stitches. It's death. Yeah, and when, when, you're, when you're rock climbing, you, you, you've got your harness, you've got your rope, but you've also got a belay. It's a partner that's standing, that's standing sure. there holding. Sure. The, and, and you don't go without making sure you signal to them. You know, you say, you know, on belay and belay says belay on and then you can start to do your thing. If he just, he's just like, no one's using this <laughs> until I test it and jumps. The belay's going flying. Yeah. Pretty much. No, 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 no. Nope. Well, and that's the thing. I think because of the way they were shooting those scenes, I, I think I think it was just that it was grounded in. Like, I don't think that they had that type of stuff going on, like because there was specifically the illusion of solo climbing and free climbing. So you're dealing with, you know, the boldest of the bold types of climbers um, doing some of this stuff. And there's there's other like at one point, Harlan was looking at what was going on and said, I just you can see all the harnesses like we're on the middle of this face. I've got a wide shot and I can see all the harnesses. This doesn't work. And so the stunt guy goes, "Okay, I'll do no harness and does the fucking stunt. And Harlan's like, cool, we got it. No, no. I need you to sign this in triplicate. (laughs) Yeah, pretty fucking much. But like, this is the different. The difference is, you know, when we talked about Rumble in the Bronx, that's a whole crew. Sure. That all know we have worked with each other for decades. At that point, trust. It's just that attitude. (laughs) He does not give a shit. It's it's. He is a wild man. It's just way different when the consequences are death. (laughs) Who? 
It was Rennie Harlan's idea to use the image of the stuffed puppy falling off the cliff, but he wanted the audience to have a very clear sure, no. idea of how far that fall would be. Very effective. So they could show realistically, because we're not going to see real falls throughout this movie, so we need to give you the amount of terror that you should have about this. Yeah, it was effective. Yeah. I, I appreciated that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you needed yeah. to see something fall so that when she falls, you know what happens. The film was set in Colorado, but they instead filmed mostly in the Cortina d'Ampezzo Dolomites in Italy, mostly because it had a lot of similarities in the layout of the Rockies, but was probably cheaper to film. Also Italy. That makes a lot more sense why I was so confused the whole time. Oh, yeah. They paid 80 million lira to be able to film in every single mountain area. So they got full access. And then they did later reshoots in Durango. And I think that's probably where they're down in the villages and stuff so that it looks like they're in an American ski town. And they had the help of the Ute tribe and the Ute Mountain Reservation to do that. Electrical storms hit the production while filming. It hit at least five of the crew. And Earl Wiggins, one of the climbers, was hit three different times by electrical storms. He only sustained minor injuries each time. But yeah. When you're up that high on a mountain and you have film equipment, shit happens. That that person is a legend. (laughs) Wherever wherever they are from, they are are the unkillable rock climbing legend. All of the climbers who worked on this movie are fucking legends. Every single fucking one of them. Because that's some crazy shit they were doing on screen. During one storm, crew members were taking pictures of their hair standing on end. Just like, wow, this is crazy. And all of the climbers started looking at them being like, get the fuck off the mountain now. You're about to get electrocuted. No. <laughs> this is why Diana doesn't go into nature. That's fair. It's fair. Nature, <laughs> nature sucks. Let's nope. be honest. I'm an indoor person. And apparently there is a bootleg copy of this film. That's the rumor that has 20 more minutes of footage, including a lot more violence and a lot more language. This movie had to be extensively cut to get an R rating. Ooh, now I want to watch that. Yeah. I mean, I imagine they cut a bunch to, to show that guy being impaled. Probably. Yeah. That impaling is really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very yeah. effective. Okay, we are now to our cast. And that means we are going to talk first as Gabe Walker, Sylvester Stallone. I will not give his credits. Because, my God, we talked about eight movies with him in it for this show. On the show proper and also in this episode alone. (laughs) If you don't know who the Italian Stallion is, you need to do some research. We've talked a little bit already, but what do we think of Stallone's performance in this movie? Well, I mean... Having comparing it to like a bunch of other movies, there, there really wasn't much to compare it to. Like, like I don't feel like there was anything written in his character that was all that compelling. And so it was really just watching him do all those really, really cool things. I don't think there was any real uh, uh, like wow moments for me for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think this is a performance where you're coming to see Stallone's acting per se. I think it is very much, hey, you're coming to see Stallone action star. You know, Not that he's bad or anything, but I don't think this is, a, you know, kind of a display of his acting chops as some of his other movies are. 
I agree. This is not like his best acting. He's not doing anything super spectacular. No. With one exception, his speech. He is not using his very typical Stallone slurred speech. Yeah. It is taking everything in him to speak completely differently. He is actively not speaking that way. And for me, that makes me go, ooh. Stallone's doing something different. Yeah, what? And it worked really well. He was doing his tango in cash, Sylvester Stallone. I've never seen that, so. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, you, you have to. I know. We will. <laughs> I had put it on the list, but David vetoed it. Uh, we had other movies we needed to do. Fair, we did. We fair, did. Fair. The thing for me, and, and it's why I enjoyed it, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I was really interested in it because we had eight movies of Rocky, and Rocky is such a specific character. Sure. And like he's had ups and downs, but his acting with that character was always phenomenal, mm-hmm. even if the writing wasn't always there for it. And so with this one, there was the fact that he tones down that accent and he tones it down enough to where you believe that he's not a guy from, you know, the middle of New York. Or maybe he was, but he spent enough time out in the middle of Colorado that he kind of sounds like he's from there. Like there's enough there where I believe that he's mm-hmm. a guy who's been on mountains most of his life. Mm-hmm. And then with that, there's this sort of real small level acting he's doing, which can butt up weird against some of the like, you know, Bert blowing up money and shit that he does. But some of it plays really well, especially early on when you're seeing all the conflict in him about going back up and climbing again. Like, I believe wholeheartedly, and I know he's going to be in the rest of this movie, but in that first 20 minutes, you're not really sure, because he's doing a convincing job of selling, like, I ain't going back up there ever again, not after what happened. Yeah, it's definitely not his best performance, but there's some subtle stuff that he's doing that's really just not something I've seen him do in a lot of movies, and I really enjoyed seeing that. Yeah, this being the first time seeing that, that was enter- that was enjoyable. Yeah. I would also give him bonus points in his writing credits for this movie understating that character yes allow allowing that to happen i can see a lot of other uh, action stars not being okay with it. it's like because you're not sure. looking at him the whole time when he's talking you're drifting off sure. you know when he's doing something cool you're looking but i would imagine that a another action star would have been like i want bigger monologue type scenes or i want to you know i want more punchy or what yeah i want to be more badass why i don't like i don't like that i would say no i, I want to go and i want no i'm going to punch the mountain in the face it is such a smart move to make this character super grounded mm-hmm. when you want to make that crew of villains be so all over the map because they all yeah. are they all have very different personalities mm-hmm. and instead he is completely centered and grounded and in some ways super reluctant he is also a little I don't want to be here today in a di- in a different way it's like totally in a very in more of a scared way yeah. honestly it's, yeah it's yeah. I don't want to face my personal trauma I don't want to let down my friend who hates me and I don't want to die and I don't want to die <laughs> that is such a simple thing but it's so often forgotten in action movies of like it plays really well when you have a character who is legitimately scared of dying yeah it really plays strong on camera. That is a very valid uh, yeah. motivation for a yeah. character. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, we, we forget that sometimes with action films, but sometimes your motivation can be, I want to get away from the bad guy who's trying to murder me. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't always have to be, you know, I have to, I have to avenge this person or thing. Stallone took the role mostly to help conquer his fear of heights. Interesting. 
So that plays into his performance a bit, I think. I like it. <laughs> cool. Good for <laughs> you, man. And the climbing for the role definitely roughed up his hands. Aww. He loved to golf, and the changes to his hands completely messed up his game. Oh, yeah. Like, it was Chris rough enough really on him important. that he had to completely readjust. He actually got a net brought on set so he could practice to get his to get his swing back. And the models he dated at the time complained about how rough his hands were. Oh, I mean, unappreciative. I know. I don't feel alone <laughs> at all. <laughs> so next up, we get to talk about an actor that we have never talked about on this show before. That's fucking insane. John Lithgow as Quaylen. Before this, all that jazz, blowout, the world according to Garp, Twilight Zone the movie, the day after, Terms of Endearment, Footloose, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, 2010, The Manhattan Project, Harry and the Hendersons, Out Cold, Memphis Bell, Ricochet, At Play in the Fields of the Lord, Raising Cain, and The Wrong Man. After this, The Pelican Brief, Silent Fall, The Tuskegee Airmen, Hollow Point, Third Rock from the Sun, Homegrown, A Civil Action, Shrek, Orange County, Kinsey, Dreamgirls, Dexter, Leap Year, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, This is 40, Interstellar, The Accountant, Pitch Perfect 3, Pet Cemetery in 2019, The Crown, and Bombshell. What do we think of John Lithgow in this movie? He's a cartoon character in this movie, but he's also has a tendency to be a cartoon character as a human being. <laughs> he's a cartoon version of Hans Gruber. If there is any direct connection to Die Hard, in, the, in between these two movies, it's Quaylen. Quaylen is Hans Gruber, but super cartooned up. The only reason it works is because, like we said, Gabe's character is so reined in. Not complaining all the time. Yeah. Well, there's no, there's, there's not a back and forth. It's all very abstract. And so Quaylen's job is to hold up the main plot of the movie while Gabe's running around sabotaging him and chew scenery. Over and over and over again. Yeah. It's hard. He is kind of all over the place. Well, the, the weird thing was, and you said earlier about him like being the, the source of all exposition. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I don't quote me on this. I don't know it for a fact. It just seemed this way to me that every single one of his lines was not, was, was not meant to be responded to. He didn't have dialogue back and forth with like anybody. He just, everything, everything was either a, a, a statement or, or uh, like sometimes an insult, but like <laughs> there was so like it's hard to judge acting of the actor when like they're written in a way that there's no interaction with them, and th they basically could have been the narrator, like like Morgan Freeman's voice floating over could have done the job. I feel like he's written as though he's not like a blowfield, and that he is not meant to interact with anybody. He's supposed to sit there and watch all his goons handle business. And, oh, you're doing this wrong. Go deal with this bullshit. And that's it. You want to kill me, don't you, Tucker? I'll take a number and get in line. But the problem is, they're on a mountain. <laughs> exactly. And you can't do that. No, 100%. And here's where the problem in the writing is. 100%. They don't address that. Oh, I agree. I feel like the only person he interacted with, really interacted with, was, was Travers. And Travers is way up at the top of the staircase where Quaylen is way down at the bottom of it. So there's just this big, just divide gap between the two. And I feel like that's who he interacted with most. Like there was more, I feel like there was more conflict between Quaylen and, and Travers than there was anybody else in the movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
and I, I don't know if this speaks to his his acting per se, but like he he has like no real motivation, like not just motivation as an actor, but like the character. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why this person in this situation isn't scared out of their mind. He doesn't seem to understand nature or climbing or anything in particular. So he's super smart sounding, but he's not one of those villains who's like just so damn smart that you could put him in any situation and they're just going to be calm and collected. Like, you know, it just, it didn't seem like this guy had, I don't know, you compare it to other movies like The Rock, like the bad guy in The Rock, he's smart. He knew what he was doing. He had plans and everything. And when things go wrong, he, he even gets a little bit kind of spooked. This guy like is written the whole time, like, Nothing bad is going to happen to me in this situation that I literally didn't, could never have imagined was going to happen. Never been here. I'm a city person. <laughs> but everything's going to be complete. Like, you know what I mean? He honestly, he honestly didn't feel like a villain to me until he was sitting in a helicopter at the end. He's like, I'm going to sit here and y'all go do the thing. Like the rest of <laughs> you just felt like a henchman. Like he was along with all of his henchmen the entire thing. So I guess he's a good leader. I mean, he's there with the people, but he didn't feel like a villain until the end where he's like, I'm going to sit in the helicopter. Y'all go do, I mean like leader, like you want your boss to be where they're in the rough with you. He was in the rough with them, you know, but until the end, he's like, I'm going to stay in the helicopter. You go do this. I think I was like, that's a villain. (laughs) All of these villains are on this job because it is contingent upon them making millions of dollars. I mean, one of the biggest issues is that we don't see the cash. We just hear them say the amount of money that they're going to steal. And so it's like the idea is they're all going to be ludicrously wealthy. So the only reason he has their loyalty is that he's paid them and that the thing they have not figured out. And again, this is why one of the great things about this villain could be is like you make him an Elon Musk and it's perfect. Mm -hmm. He is paying all these people. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He thinks he's got an answer for everything. And finally, he blows up and starts going crazy in a helicopter because nobody's left to take care of him. Mm-hmm. Nobody's there to do his dirty work anymore. And that's where they were trying to go, but they wrote it so poorly they didn't do that. Yeah, yeah there should have been at least one hint that that, that character was, was a little out of their element sure. when yes. the final henchman dies. Like when each of them is getting killed one at a time, classic of any of these types of movies they're going out and he's like he's just as confident as he was when he had a bunch a handful of them now he's got like one left and he plans on killing her anyway and but it's like it just doesn't make any sense to yeah, <laughs> like no. he's not he's not at all getting, getting getting more nervous about his situation yeah he should have been a lot more composed and have been more willing to listen to gabe and what's his butt to to be like, no, this is how we got have to go about getting your money because this is what makes the most sense to stay safe and alive. Like, I understand, like, like you know, pull it, throw your weight around. And I'm the guy with the guns and whatnot. But like, there should have been a little bit more of his willingness to accept that because it's his life or death. He and Hal, Michael Rooker's character, needed to have Hal. much more time together. Character. Like, I understand Gabe has to get separated so he can be the driving force behind stuff and go Rambo stuff. But then Hal needs to be Hal needs to be driving this wedge between him and his henchmen. Sure, sure. And they don't do that. that. Who could have been better? Cast in the role, but leaving right before production started. Christopher Walken. Whoa. Yes. I mean, that would have been way different. Yeah. Lithgow (laughs) was a last minute replacement. Okay. 
not a bad replacement. No. I mean, no. Those guys can play in similar lanes. They definitely can. Weirds. They can play weird for sure. But Walken is a but, slight upgrade in that department. Ag- agreed. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone with him at that time in my like like I would go with with more like Walken from the Rundown, older Walken. That would have been a much different movie, probably much more watchable. Uh, but like Lith Lithgow, I think he was just too polished for this. Sure. And Walken is gritty. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> you know, I think well, probably in be- I think in between Walken and uh, and uh, Lithgow would probably be like John Boyd. Like that's the floating in the middle probably could have done the same thing. But, you know, we got we got that with uh, two years later with Mission Impossible. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now. How about I give you Rennie Harlan's original choice for the role? Okay. Because who could have been better? David Bowie. See, that writing makes sense now for David Bowie in that I'm going to speak at you and you're going to accept what I have to say. Presentation. That makes sense from David Bowie. Mm-hmm. But only as stunt casting. That's true. That's stunt yeah. casting. Which I don't always hate stunt casting. Sometimes it can work out really well. Bowie's one of the few stunt casts who can also show up and give something extra to a role. That man can that came in can work it. I would buy David Bowie as the villain replacement if we were still talking about the script they threw out about it being a sci-fi movie in space or whatever. <laughs> then I'd be like, oh, totally. I would have kept him as my first choice for that. Over, yeah, but this is mid nineties Bowie. He toned everything <laughs> down, got his hair cut. Yeah. He, uh, there's a world in which David Bowie could play this role really fucking well. I believe it. I don't know. And maybe it's not against Stallone, but I don't know. There, there's Definitely against Michael Rooker, for sure. I don't think any actor, no matter how much better they are or worse they are, could have done a better job with the character that they were handed. <laughs> Somebody would have to fight to make that character better. Uh, I, think, I think it could be Walken. I think Walken could yeah. do it. All right, we move on to Michael Rooker as Hal Tucker. The real villain of this movie. (laughs) Sure, the guy who just doesn't really do anything wrong except take his girlfriend to the top of the most dangerous mountain in the range. And then can't forgive. Which is like... He can't forgive. Fucked up. Before this, he made his debut in the very controversial Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Then Light of Day, Above the Law, Eight Men Out, Mississippi Burning, Sea of Love, Days of Thunder, and JFK. After this, he is in Mallrats, The Trigger Effect, Rosewood, The Replacement Killers, The Bone Collector, The Sixth Day, Replicant, Slither, Jumper, Freeway Killer, The Walking Dead, Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Fantasy Island, the horror remake in 2020, F9, and he is in the reboot of The Suicide Squad. What do we think of Michael Rooker in this film? I mean, he's serviceable, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I didn't realize it was Michael Rooker for a full 15 minutes. And... So there's not a lot for him to do in this movie. No. What I will say is that knowing the types of roles that Michael Rooker has played and has got especially gotten typecast to play now, this is kind of cool to watch. Yeah, he certainly wasn't your, you know, potentially creepy uncle in this movie, which is like every other role he does for a while after, or, you know, what I think of him as, you know. He's playing white trash a lot. Yeah. And in this, he's just, he is woodsy sidekick guy who happens to be tough enough to protect himself Yeah. yeah. and try to help everybody out. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of cool because it's like, it's a little glimpse of if he hadn't been pushed into this character lane, the types of stuff he probably could do as well. I think he could still do it. 
yeah, he just and he and he may. But it's just one of those cool things to watch to be like, you're somebody I've only seen in one light and you're playing a very different character, but doing equally as good a job. I never knew who he was until I watched The Walking Dead. Yeah. 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 I, th- I thought he did a good job. It was probably credit due to the casting director, but like it, it was a good person to make you remember you're on a mountain. These are mountain people. Like there was nothing Hollywood really about him. And I, I liked that. It didn't, sure. you know, like in, in a lot of the like under siege movies and, and just any Steven Seagal movie, there's always a, a, a character who you're just like, well, you're an actor. Yeah. He's not, he's not too pretty. Nobody yeah, yeah. in this movie was too pretty to be on a mountain with one exception that I think we'll get to later. <laughs> There's one person who's too pretty to be a on a A little too pretty. <laughs> and then finally with our main cast, we have Janine Turner as Jesse Deegan. Before this, she was in Monkey Shines, Steel Magnolias, and had a long run on Northern Exposure. Okay. After this, she was in 1997's Leave It to Beaver, Dr. T and the Women, and I think had another similar run on Friday Night Lights. What do we think of Janine Turner in this film? Definitely had a lot of experience in a parka. <laughs> she's good. She's, I mean, she's not doing anything like revolutionary, but I, I just love that her character is not this helpless lady. Like she's very much yeah. like, no, I'm gonna go find them. This is not safe. It's not okay. If they're not back by now, something's wrong. She's super competent. Mm-hmm. She has the requisite skills. Sure, that's two things that we don't get in most action movie female leads. And she's not dismissed out of hand by the dudes that no. she works with. Oh yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, she's definitely feels important, like in her role in the movie, and like. Mm-hmm in her job like you know she seems respected by everybody and you know not just tossed aside Mm -hmm. that character is not an afterthought and that's so fucking refreshing (laughs) like could could she have had the tucker role sure in an update i would like the tucker role to be a lady i would love the gay role to be a lady that'd be kick-ass too but i i like that at least in 93 you get a kick-ass lady who's not being dismissed by her co-workers or the villains, and <laughs> she's good at her job. Yeah. And she's not running around naked half the movie. <laughs> That's That was a huge play. The the part, right when they meet at the beginning and, and have that whole how long has he been gone kind of story mm-hmm. being told, like, she's dismissive of him. She's not all swoony. She's not, there's no, like, there's no waiting for him to talk. Like, she, it's like she she's she's got her role, her character, what yeah. her character is doing. And it, you're watching her, whereas in a lot of uh, 80, late '80s, early '90s action movies, I can't. I don't. Probably many people can't. You can't remember the characters like that. Sure. You don't remember what they were doing because you're because you're looking at the main guy, the sure. Van Dam, is what you're looking at. All right, that is our main cast. We now move on to Arpon's random persons of note. We have Rex Lynn playing Travers, longtime that guy actor. If you've seen a mo- an action movie, you've probably seen him in it. He's in Rush Hour and most recently Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. Carlene Goodall as Christelle. She was Moira from Hook. Yeah. Completely different role here. Okay. We have Leon playing Kinnett. Leon, the lead from Cool Runnings. Okay. This is the person who's too pretty to be on a mountain. (laughs) And the lead in the Temptations TV movie. And when I saw him, I was like, wait, wait a minute. That guy looks really familiar. That looks like Leon. From? From Real Housewives of Atlanta. There you go. Oh, okay. I love all the Real Housewives. I watch pretty much all of them except for Miami because that one's trash. (laughs) 
And so I had to go look this up. He was in a relationship with one Cynthia Bailey. So that is Leon from the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Yep. Yes, it is. This is very important information to me. I I can't believe I've been watching that show for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, It's been that long and I just now realized that that guy is the guy who's in Cool Weddings and I freaking love that movie. Also with John Candy. This was his first major film role because Cool Runnings was the year after this. And he was so impressive in his audition. He was immediately cast. They didn't didn't have anybody else come in. He's still that hot. (laughs) He is a hot, hot man. He is too hot to be on that mountain. (laughs) We have Max Perlick, a longtime subdued character actor as one of the stoner snow dudes, Evan. We have Paul Winfield, a longtime action staple as Walter Wright, the head of the different police forces going after the money. You've seen him in Wrath of Khan, the Terminator as one of the police chiefs and Mars Attacks. Ralph Waite as Frank. He played John Walton Sr. on The Waltons and was also in a movie we've talked about on here called Cool Hand Luke. Zach Grenier as Davis. This is a blink and you'll miss it cameo, but this is David Lee, the asshole lawyer on The Good Wife, and Andy Kramer in Deadwood. And finally, Don S. Davis plays the character Stuart. You might know him as Major Garland Briggs in Twin Peaks. A lot of people. Some good 90s action people. All right, now we get to trivia. A sequel to this movie was planned in 1994 called the dam which would have been die hard in a dam stallone uh, was going to fight terrorists taking over the, the hoover, hoover dam, dam. <laughs> yeah yeah okay i'll buy it i mean I'd, I'd i'd watch it it never got past development but stallone even tried to revive it in 2008 i mean i'd watch him i'd watch him ride down the side of hoover dam on the back of a man and scrape his face off <laughs> oh, I'm, i want to see someone slide down the hoover dam that's what i'm here for yeah yeah, who does who does he drop at the beginning of that movie? I don't know. Schwarzenegger. No, he probably yeah. drops the same woman. It's just a little mini flashback to that trauma. Yeah, just to remind you. <laughs> this this the twist. He he is yeah. dropped, and he goes, Ooh. and then Diana gets her wish of there being a lead role. The movie has been widely criticized for a very unrealistic portrayal of rock climbing. You don't say. <laughs> the bolt gun that fires directly into the rock is completely infeasible. You have to drill and bolt hammer. Can we can we address, maybe I don't remember, I just watched it last night, but maybe I missed it. Did anybody get killed by that gun? No. Why not? I don't know. Oh, it shouldn't have even been in the movie. Someone should Why have. Even... I thought maybe they turned they it on. I don't remember. I don't think so. A lot of shit happens in this movie. <laughs> Someone should have at least had their hand bolted to the mountain. Yeah, it should have been, yeah. I mean. That should have happened. Or as as gross as this movie got, that should have been <laughs> a foot. He should have bolted his own hand to the mountain sure. to keep from falling or something. 20 minutes of this movie got cut. Maybe that's It's probably it. on the cutting room floor because they couldn't get the R. But yes, this bolt, this bolt shooter ignores the properties of rock that would just cause it to shatter and explode. You would not be able to get a bolt to secure itself into the rock by doing that. <laughs> Other issues in this movie, there are athletic moves that have no real use in actual climbing that are used in this film. Sure. Uh, yes. When, it, it, when that whole like turn to like, yeah. anyway, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of bullshit. They're only hearing it. But, like there, there's a bunch of acrobatics just to get different shots sure. of biceps. And... and then the fact that they are free solo climbing with gear, which makes 
no sense. Which, if you are going to be free solo, you don't have anything on you that would cause you to be heavier and fall. Yeah. Uh, we learned that in like the Mission Impossibles. Doesn't one of them start with him just free climbing? Yeah, number two. Yeah. <laughs> now, more inaccurate fun, but related to the Denver Mint. The Denver Mint does not produce paper currency. It only produces coins. So therefore, $100 million from the Denver Mint would be approximately 2,500 tons. Wouldn't be three suitcases worth of currency. Oh. I mean, and let's talk about those suitcases. He popped one of those open with a rock. I don't feel like they were that secure. Like, they had multiple card readers and... He's like, I'm going to just, you know. I mean, it is 1993. <laughs> Bill Clinton used to, you know, carry around the nuclear briefcase and leave it in the back of presidential limos. So, like, I. 93 secure. <laughs> but, didn't, but, but there was a specific line in there where Lithgow was telling, what's his face? Uh, give me the thing or I'll kill you. Or we'll kill you or whatever. He's like, you can't kill me. I'm the only one that knows the codes to open these things uh-huh. or whatever. Was that what? Or yep. was that to decrypt the currency? What was the. No, that was. The track, like I'm the only one who knows how to work the thing to track the actual. Suitcase. Yeah, it's the it's the oh, tracker. Okay, so it wasn't the case. No. It wasn't the no, case. No, okay. The case, no, no. The tracker thing seemed really, I don't know, complicated. Convoluted. Yeah, those those things happen when when a bunch of writers are yelling across the table at each other, and one person's like, "This is what we're doing," and one person's like, "Well, what about this? They know this. I don't know." We, we and then they finally come to like, "Well, let's just what, what if we give them like this thingy that does the thingy? Someone will clean that up." Yeah. <laughs> That's all you got to do. Someone will figure out the technology for the screen. Who cares? (laughs) But yeah, you wouldn't be able to do that if you were going from Denver. It would have to come from DC directly. The film is dedicated to Wolfgang Gulich. He is one of the climbing doubles for Stallone and at the time was one of the most skillful, daring, and popular rock climbers in history. He was killed in a car accident shortly after filming completed on this. Ron Kauk, Stallone's stunt double for this movie, not his climbing double, had to bulk up for the role. He had to eat five carb-packed meals a day and weightlift religiously. And his trainer actually wanted him to wake up in the middle of the night and eat a sixth meal to bulk up to Stallone's size. I'm in the wrong line of work if you get a sixth meal. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great for like the first week. (laughs) And then horrible. Yeah. That's gonna be scary too. Like to like if you're a person who's gonna be doing a lot of physical activity and demanding things that a very fit person won't be doing, (laughs) you're putting on all this weight that you didn't have before. You're gonna move differently. And also, not the climbing scenes. It's all the other shit. The flexing scenes. The scene where Sarah slips from Gabe's hand had to be shot quite a few times because the glove would not slip off her hand. They kept having to do it again and again. Harlan eventually had her wear a glove that was like three sizes too large and filled with Vaseline. And even then, Stallone's grip was so strong that it still almost didn't work. Loosen up that grip, dude. <laughs> that's how that's how strong Sylvester Stallone is, y'all. I believe it. The cliff built for the battle sequence burned completely to the ground within eight minutes after the miniature helicopter explosion raged out of control. The heat from the fire melted one of the cameras. Wow. I mean, that helicopter really blew up. I mean, yeah. Big time. <laughs> the, I, I will say, just like everything else in this movie, the explosions, bonkers. Yeah. I like the big explosion. This film holds the Guinness World Record for the costliest aerial stunt 
ever performed. Here we go, Kent. It's the plane sequence. I'm here for it. Simon Crane, the stuntman, was paid $1 million to cross between two specific points at 15,000 feet. There is no way he could actually go from plane to plane. That was not possible. So it was a matter of filming the right shots in sequence and then editing it to make it look like he went from one entrance to the other. There were no safety devices or trick photography for that sequence. I was going to say it didn't look like it. None. That's insane. The insurance refused to cover the stunt. So Stallone took a cut in his salary to personally pay for the coverage. See, Stallone's a good dude. (laughs) If they wanted to get the stunt right and this guy's going to do it, they got to pay the man. Yeah. uh, Fuck yeah, you do. They had to film in the U.S. They could not film this over the mountains in Europe because the stunt would be illegal. Mm -hmm. They could only do this in the United States. Yeah, it is nutballs. That's insane. (laughs) It it looks awesome. Yeah, I mean, it looked really good. I mean, I'm not surprised at all that that it was, I mean, no like CGI or anything to it. Like it all looked as real as it could be. I will also say, if you remember the air sequence with Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. So much of that came back to me watching this. Yeah. yeah. Like, I was like, oh, Nolan saw this sequence and took a few pointers. The preview audiences saw a cut in which the rabbit actually gets killed by gunfire. But the reaction was so negative that Stallone personally invested $100,000 so they could go back to the location, reshoot it, so that the bunny jumps back up and hops away. A bunny's life costs $100,000. Wow. <laughs> I will say it's perfect because Travers is so fucking angry and off his fucking shit. And then to have this bunny pop back up and be like, fuck you, motherfucker. You didn't kill me yeah, either. Yeah. Is so much better than having to just see it dead. And the credits include a message explaining that the black diamond harness used in the opening scene would never fail. The company required them to state that would not be possible to happen unless it had been specially modified. I would imagine that they demanded imagine. whether or not it's true. <laughs> <laughs> You're losing a lot of sales. Uh-huh. Whether, or not, whether or not that could happen, we ain't letting you say it on screen. You're going to say that and you're going to pay us a lot of money. <laughs> well, 70 million, you know, throw a couple hundred thousand their way and be fine. It's a mill. It's a solid mill. Yeah. That's the movie. Ratings. Rating. For every episode of Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, we have a special rating system for this movie. <sighs> Do we want to go tracker things? Do we want to go bunnies with the middle finger up saying fuck you Survive, to Travis? Surviving bunnies. Surviving Survivor bunnies. bunnies. I like survivor bunnies. I enjoyed the movie, so I'm going to go with the positive surviving bunnies. Let's go surviving, with the bunnies. Surviving bunnies. And Kent, how many surviving bunnies will you give? I rated it on Letterboxd as a three surviving bunnies out of five. Ooh, very nice. I really enjoyed the movie. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Diana? What do you think? Ooh, uh, my first instinct was also three surviving bunnies. If I was flipping through the TV and it was on, I'd, I'd, well, I'd watch it for a bit. To be like, where are we at? What's going on? And I'll tell you now, it's on Hulu. You can just go watch it. Yeah, it is crazy. You got Hulu? You can go watch Cliffhanger right now. 
Tim, how many surviving bunnies are you going to give this movie? Well, I had originally given it three and a half surviving bunnies, but then Sylvester Stallone spent a good million dollars and put the bunny, you know, the whole, they just reshot it and can't cut a bunny in half. So I'm back down to three, (laughs) three whole living surviving bunnies. I I loved the movie when I was young. I loved rewatching it for different reasons. And I liked the different Stallone. I'm going to go just a little slightly higher. Three and a half surviving bunnies. I really enjoyed this movie. You murdered a bunny. <laughs> you know what? It's not a half a bunny. It's a little baby bunny. Three three normal bunnies and a little baby bunny. I just, I re- it really surprised me. I was expecting this to be very schlocky. And it wasn't. It had a lot of meat to it and a lot of substance to it. It's got problems, no doubt. But like, this is such a watchable movie. Mm-hmm. If somebody was like, I've seen all the action movies give me something new and be like, have you ever watched cliffhanger? Cause if you haven't go, or if you haven't in, you know, a long time, go do it again. It's just fun. Yep. 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 I would definitely recommend it to anybody looking for a good action movie to watch, you know, on a random weekend. Mm-hmm. And one that you probably haven't sat down and watched before. Yep. 100%. And that is cliffhanger. Tim Kent. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this movie. Yeah. And if people want more Tim, where can they find more Tim on the internet? Uh, well, you could probably find me at uh, at GM Tim D on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't really frequent many other places. And uh, I'm also part of the Roll to Play Network, uh, rolltoplaynetwork.com. Cool. And Kent, if people want more Kent, where can they find Kent on the internet? Uh, thanks for having me back uh, to, to talk about this movie. It's a lot of fun. You can find me at that guy, Kent Blue, on Twitter. I uh, also run the at Roll to Play Pod for the, for the Roll to Play Podcast Twitter. Also, I don't know, co-founder of Rotoplay Network at rotoplaynetwork.com. Yep. Yeah, that's where you can find me, where I'm saying stuff that I don't know may or may not be worth reading. <laughs> it's very worth reading. <laughs> it's all very worth reading. All right, well, thanks again, and until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>